Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a program like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. Religious groups and social conservative groups of various types took it as a very important critical goal to prevent same-sex couples from winning this equal freedom to marry. We had to answer those, those attacks, answer those efforts by fighting back. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Chris. There are some religious people, congregations, and religions that support LGBTQ people. In the Episcopal Church, Bishop Gene Robinson was the first openly gay bishop, but his consecration led to a worldwide split in the church over the issue of homosexuality. In New York City, Congregation Beit Simchat Torah is an LGBTQ welcoming synagogue with an openly gay leader, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum. Both Bishop Jean and Rabbi Kleinbaum were guests on earlier editions of Outcasting. You can listen to their interviews on our website, outcastingmedia.org. But historically, many religions have condemned LGBTQ people. The Catholic Church has described homosexuality as an intrinsic disorder and encouraged people to condemn the sin, not the sinner, as if people can just rip sexuality out of their lives without inflicting great harm on themselves. Any number of religious counselors continue to practice conversion or reparative therapy to cure people of being gay, even as a growing number of states and even some other countries recognize that this treatment is ineffective and potentially dangerous. We did a series in early 2020 on conversion therapy. It's also available at outcastingmedia.org. As the law is catching up with growing public acceptance of LGBTQ people, and as we have secured a number of important civil rights, there is a movement determined to put us firmly back in our place, as they would have it. Cake shops and florists claim that they're entitled to deny their services to us because they say that providing services to LGBTQ people would violate their religious liberty. This discrimination would never be seen as legitimate if it were directed at other minority groups. Just imagine it. A shop owner says, my religious liberty prevents me from serving black people or Jewish people, so go away. It's unthinkable that that would be seen as acceptable in today's world. And of course, there are businesses where the stakes would be much higher if it becomes the law that businesses can just turn away LGBTQ people based on a religious objection. So is there any legitimacy when a business owner cites religious liberty to justify denying service to LGBTQ people? What are the contours of religious liberty? What's supposed to happen when someone citing religious liberty discriminates against LGBTQ people, thus denying their equality? What does equality mean in the United States? Does one take precedence over the other when equality and religious liberty come into conflict? This is the fifth part of our conversation with Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. In earlier parts of this series, we were talking about how religious liberty and LGBTQ equality can coexist peacefully under the Constitution, but also how the guarantee of equality hasn't yet made LGBTQ people truly equal. When we left off on the last edition of Outcasting, Jenny and Outcaster Lucas had started discussing the Notorious Defensive Marriage Act, or DOMA, which was enacted in the mid-1990s. At the time, marriage was restricted to different sex couples, 
but it was beginning to look as though some states might soon begin to allow same-sex couples to marry. In reaction, the federal government enacted DOMA, which sought to limit the marriage rights of same-sex couples in two ways, one state and one federal. First, DOMA created an exception to the general rule that each state is supposed to give legal effect to the official acts of the other states. This rule is an important part of what makes the United States united. In the context of marriage, this rule says that with very limited exceptions, if you get married in any state, every other state is supposed to treat you as married. But one part of DOMA allowed any state to ignore same-sex marriages entered into elsewhere. Once same-sex couples started to get married in the states that allowed it, DOMA caused their marriage rights to flicker in and out like cell phone service as they crossed state lines, as it was colorfully put by the civil rights lawyer Evan Wolfson on an earlier edition of Outcasting. The other part of DOMA allowed the federal government to ignore same-sex marriages for all federal purposes, excluding married same-sex couples from a significant number of programs, statuses, and protections that were available to different sex couples. This included immigration for binational couples, as we discussed on another Outcasting program. You can hear these programs on our website, outcastingmedia.org. So DOMA made same-sex marriages distinctly unequal and disadvantaged compared with different sex marriages. Lucas and Jenny now continue the conversation from there. Welcome back to Outcasting, Jenny. Thanks so much, Lucas. It's good to be here. Despite DOMA, the marriage equality movement accelerated during the early 2000s with some states legalizing same-sex marriage. And then came the marriage equality cases, Windsor in 2013 and Obergefell in 2015, invalidating the two operative parts of DOMA. Before you tell us about the cases themselves... There were differing opinions in the LGBTQ community about whether to even bring these cases up at the time. There were many different opinions about both whether marriage equality was an important goal for the movement and also timing and tactics for seeking the freedom to marry. When I was a law student in the mid-80s, there were robust arguments about it. And at that time, many of the women, many of the lesbians that were working for family rights were not focused particularly on marriage. Many of us at the time thought a better goal would be to create a different set of rules and laws to protect our families, maybe that might be more flexible or might be broader. And there were certainly some feminist legal advocates and scholars that took the view that marriage had been forever a patriarchal institution that was terrible for women. I mean, in earlier generations of our country, the moment a woman married a man, she lost her legal rights. She became his property. She couldn't sign a contract. You know, she couldn't make legal decisions. In some situations, she couldn't testify in court. She really became a non-person at the point that she became a wife. So for many of us who have studied that history from a feminist perspective, marriage really didn't seem like a goal. And certainly for some of us as we were growing up, for myself, long before I came to understand my own identity as a lesbian, I never really saw myself marrying a man, never particularly was a personal goal. So there there was that school of thought that just didn't think that it was among the many things to tackle that did not seem like the right approach to protect our relationships. In this in this movement that was about moving past old archaic sexual rules and ideas about gender roles, that we should come up with some new things that were more flexible or different, and certainly that were based on equality. 
at the same time as this was being debated within LGBT legal circles, there were voices that said, absolutely, this has got to be an important priority for us because it is the practical legal family law framework that deals with a lot of the issues that come up in family settings. The rules in family law are flexible and recognize the relationships are based on emotions, as opposed to some of the rules that govern in business contexts, for example. People make agreements in very different ways if it's a family context as opposed to a business context, and the legal rules are different. And some of the people that were urging marriage as a top priority were doing so because of the social recognition that comes from marriage. The celebration of a relationship, the way marriage ceremonies are understood as bringing families together. Of course, there's a lot of romance and idealism about it, but there's a lot of ritual also and a lot of tradition that helps people organize their lives and gives people a framework for resolving disputes and problems. So it's both practical and symbolic. I think there also were and have been throughout our movement people who have said, okay, well, these family relationship problems may be important, but we have problems of police brutality, systemic poverty, employment discrimination, and bullying and violence. We should be prioritizing those things. I think the way it all fits together is that some of the movement organizations, certainly this has been true for Lambda Legal, Our docket has been very diverse. So we created a marriage project, dedicated significant time to winning that fight, but we've always had dedicated resources focusing on employment and the needs of young people in schools and a police misconduct project, an affair courts project dealing with bias within the judicial system. It certainly had seemed, I think, and and probably there's no arguing this, that the marriage work captured public imagination and received a lot of attention in the media, probably because of the symbolism that's involved and because of the way it seemed to involve a clash of values, a clash of interests. Certainly for some religious groups and social conservative groups of various types, they took it as a very important critical goal to prevent same-sex couples from winning this equal freedom to marry. And because it became such a priority on the part of those who opposed our freedom to marry, we kind of had no choice but to marshal our efforts and our resources to push back when we faced all these proposals to change the law to specifically cement us into an unequal, excluded pariah category, we had to fight back against that. Those efforts were done both with religious condemnation often, but also with false, defamatory, harmful things said about us that we should be prevented from having the freedom to marry because it would be bad for children. For example, that became a a common theme, a common trope. And it's just not true. I mean, it's certainly not true that my being married to my wife causes harm to anybody else's children. But for same-sex couples raising children, being locked out of the family law system and, and, and kept in an unequal status was bad for their children. 
both in, in practical terms and also in terms of social messages. So in some sense, we had to answer those attacks, answer those efforts by fighting back. The three couples that started the litigation in Hawaii did it because it was something that was important to them. They wanted to be able to get married. And they had a lawyer, very smart, talented lawyer, who at the time was working with the, the local Hawaii ACLU chapter, who brought that case. It was not a movement decision at that time to bring that case in that place. There were things about Hawaii law and the courts that were favorable, but it was not a movement decision to do that case at that time. But this is a movement of lots of people with different ideas of the path they want for their own lives and the freedom to pursue what they wish. And it's because it was something profoundly important to them. That effort ended up launching something way bigger than those three couples ever would have thought. And it was our role to develop strategy, think about other cases, and figure out the range of things that we all could do to ultimately get us to a point of success. Just to be clear, legal and civil marriages and religious marriages are really two different things, even though they're often performed simultaneously, correct? Yes, that's exactly right. The government issues marriage licenses. That's a civil function performed by the government. And in our society, we have this interesting relationship between the secular government, the civil government, and religious leaders where clergy are given the authority by the government to perform that ceremony and to have that ceremony have legal significance. It's an unusual context. Usually the government does not deputize religious figures to perform a government function. But in the marriage context, that's how we've set it up. So people can are just as married if their ceremony is performed by a justice of the peace or a judge, for example, or by a properly authorized member of the clergy. Whoever performs that solemnization, if they do it according to the requirements of that state, the couple is married at the end of that ceremony. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Speaking with Outcaster Lucas is our guest, Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. So Jenny, tell us about the specifics of Windsor and Obergefell. Well, the Windsor case was brought by Edie Windsor, who was in a relationship for many, many years with her spouse, Thea. They were married in Canada, which allowed same-sex couples to marry before it was commonly available in the U.S. They came back to New York. New York's rule was that while same-sex couples could not marry in New York, if a same-sex couple was validly married somewhere else, that New York would respect that marriage. So under New York law, Edie and Thea were married. They were together for many years. And then when Thea passed away, Edie was hit with this massive federal 
estate tax bill. So she sued challenging DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, Section 2 of DOMA that said for federal law purposes, a same-sex couple's marriage would not be recognized as a legal marriage. So in other words, where a different sex couple in exactly the same situation would have had no tax bill because property owned by one spouse was automatically inherited by the other spouse with no federal tax because their marriage was not respected under DOMA, there was a tax bill. So Edie challenged Section 2 of DOMA, and that case went up through the federal courts. There was a good decision, as I recall, at the Second Circuit Court of Appeal. That's the federal appellate court that covers New York and a couple of states in that area. And then it went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. There's many ins and outs about how that happened and sort of interesting, unusual twists and turns where there were questions about whether the Department of Justice was going to defend that law. This was during the Obama administration, and they did lots of internal thinking about whether the Department of Justice should defend that law or not. And ultimately, it ended up that other lawyers were brought in to defend that law because the Department of Justice under Attorney General Eric Holder concluded that it was obviously unconstitutional, <laughs> that that the federal government, the administration, did not have anything legitimate to argue to justify this unequal treatment. And part of why that conclusion was reached is that we had had enough litigation in other states at that point that the different justifications for these laws had been brought forward, tested, and shown to be without substance. I mean, arguments like, well, we should favor marriage, we should restrict it just to different sex couples because that sends a message to different sex couples that they should stay together and raise their own biological children. They shouldn't get divorced. It's better for children if they stay together. And so the interests of children favor not letting same-sex couples get married. And there were some people who thought that that was persuasive, that was plausible. But over time, as more people thought it through, they realized, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Preventing same-sex couples from getting married actually doesn't prevent different sex couples from getting divorced. <laughs> They're different groups of people, and restricting the one doesn't affect the other. There were other sorts of things like that, arguments that were made and came to fall apart under closer examination. And so the the Justice Department declined to defend Section 2 of DOMA. Other lawyers were brought in to do that job. There was a rigorous defense given. And ultimately, the Supreme Court, in an opinion written by Justice Kennedy, concluded that there were inadequate justifications for Section 2 of DOMA. The discrimination was not justified, and Section 2 had to fall. That was an enormously important breakthrough. Because by that point, there actually were thousands of same-sex couples who'd been able to get married, and many aspects of federal law that were discriminatory. I mean, the tax rules were certainly one area. Immigration rules were another. Lots of rules, actually, under federal law, where whether you're married or not makes a difference to how you're treated. And the victory in the Windsor case meant that marriages under federal law, we're all going to be treated equally. So that was very important. But of course, that was only part of the challenge. The other part of the challenge is that the state laws restricting marriage just to different sex couples 
Well, many states still had those restrictions, and especially for people who couldn't or for various reasons didn't want to travel out of state in order to get married, it was very important to get rid of those remaining discriminatory laws. That's what the Obergefell case was about. Now, there was a, an accelerating pace. There was a certain period in there where there were so many marriage cases going on because there were quite a few states that still had discriminatory laws. And so, for example, in the Ninth Circuit, that's the western part of the country, we had litigation that was going on in Nevada and in Idaho and then in Arizona and there had been some separate litigation started in other places. There was some litigation at one point in Washington state. Washington ended up changing their rule in the legislature. But you can imagine this picture of cases going on in multiple states that funneled up to the Court of Appeal. And the Ninth Circuit said, these marriage restrictions are unconstitutional. And we had the same result in a couple of other parts of the country but not in the Midwest, the Sixth Circuit. And the Sixth Circuit said, in a divided opinion, these laws are okay. We have heard the justifications from these states. We think these marriage restrictions are justified. The Obergefell case was one of the cases that was a, a package of four different cases from four different states that went up to the Supreme Court. And that created the opportunity to then call the question for the country as a whole whether any of these laws were justified. That's the Obergefell case. And that was really the bookend going together with the Windsor case, again written by Justice Kennedy, recognizing that this is about same-sex couples having adult relationships, having children, needing to have equal liberty as protected under the Constitution to run our own private lives, to have our families to have our children be protected and to not be stigmatized. Justice Kennedy wrote that opinion in a way that was affirming of same-sex couples and their families and specifically recognizing the needs of their children. Since the needs of children had been advanced by many of those opposing the freedom to marry as a reason to restrict marriage. So the opinion responds to that, but in a positive way, saying that these are rights that are important for those families to stand as equals in society. He also wrote toward the end of that opinion that there should be respect for people who disagree for religious reasons. And that in some ways sets the stage for the chapter that we've been in since then, because his interest in calling for respect going in both directions seems to have been taken by some folks who have opposed LGBT rights every step of the way as an invitation to invoke religion as a reason that they should be able to discriminate, that their beliefs should be respected even when they are effectuated in conduct that can be discriminatory. And, and that really is what we have been dealing with since. But it's important to recognize that the Obergefell decision Yes, it was one issue of marriage, but it was answering a type of stigma, a type of exclusion that has been very damaging to LGBT people, in part because it 
addresses a part of what makes us who we are. I mean, we all are many things, of course, but the stigmatizing of who we love and how we form families has been an important part of saying the essence of who we are, at least as lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, is not acceptable. And that Supreme Court decision says, yes, we have equal liberty to be ourselves, have families, and be respected by our government. And that statement has been powerfully important. And I think the positive ramifications of that in society have been pretty obvious in the years since. But even after Windsor and Obergefell, there's still opposition against marriage equality. Tell us about that. Well, right after Obergefell, we saw some particularly high-profile examples. So Kim Davis, as one example, she was the county clerk in Rowan County, Kentucky. And not only did she refuse to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, but she ordered her whole staff to refuse to do so, which of course was against the law. And she claimed a religious right to do that, which was a peculiar thing to see a civil servant doing. Ultimately, the court ordered that she could not do that, and so that stopped. But it was very high profile, I think, because it personified an objection, a reaction framed in religious terms that was not unique to her. There were other high profile figures, then Chief Justice of the Alabama Supreme Court, Roy Moore, who then was in the news before, and he continued to be in the news. He instructed all of the clerks, if I re- remember correctly, they, it was justices of the peace in Alabama that performed the function. He instructed them all to not perform marriages for same-sex couples. That also did not stand. It was against the law. We saw some similar objections from some high-profile figures in the state of Texas, and there were some similar things that were not quite so high profile, not quite so in the news. The reality, though, is that the Obergefell decision gave a clear and final answer to that question. And it shifted the public discussion at that point from whether government could discriminate against same-sex couples, and the answer was no, to whether private individuals in various contexts could continue to discriminate specifically whether religious rights would give a freedom to continue to discriminate or to reject interactions with same-sex couples or to continue to exclude same-sex couples married or not married. So the conversation really shifted from what government could do to what would be permitted in the private sector. And that's really the chapter that we have been in since then, both in terms of efforts to change laws and expand religious rights to discriminate through the the legislative process, and also through quite a broad suite of litigation challenges brought often by self-identified Christian fundamentalist or other religious conservative legal and policy groups aiming to expand religious rights through courtroom litigation. And there's been quite a lot of that before Obergefell and certainly since Obergefell. In fact, it's kept us quite busy. Thank you so much, Jenny. We're out of time for now, but we'll continue this conversation on the next edition of Outcasting. Thanks, Lucas. Pleasure being with you. That's it for this fifth part of our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team. 
including youth participants Lucas, Sarah, Lil, Justin, Brian, and me, Chris. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting content, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. Alright, go get a piece of paper. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting, LGBTQ Resources. I'm Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.